What does it mean to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus? In the drama that you saw earlier, Judas, who claimed to be a disciple, betrayed Jesus and walked away from him. Peter, who also claimed to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus, denied him three times. And then there was John. John in the Bible and the scriptures, the gospels, tends to be quiet and sort of fly underneath the screen. But John, above all of the 12 disciples, lived out in the early stages of Jesus' ministry what it really means to be a disciple, a follower of the Lord Jesus. When Jesus called his disciples, he didn't ask them to pray a special prayer. He didn't even ask them initially to be baptized or to join a church. He said two things, two words, two simple words. Follow me. And John demonstrates at the time of the crucifixion what it means to be a disciple, what it really means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 13. I'm in a series of messages. We began last week looking at John in the Garden of Gethsemane. And tonight, we're going to, today, we're going to follow him to that evening experience that he had in the courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest. Next week, we're going to see John at the resurrection. John's Gospel, chapter 13. As you are turning there, allow me to give you some background on John. Jesus met John for the first time when he was a fisherman working in the business, the fishing business of, their fa of his father Zebedee, who apparently owned a fleet of fishing boats that operated on the Sea of Galilee. John has a brother whose name is James. They were both disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Jesus met them, John and James were both fishing. Jesus, we think John and James may have been first cousins to Jesus. We're not 100% sure of that, but seems to be some indication of that. Their mothers, we think, may have well been sisters. That is Jesus' mother, Mary, and John and James's mother. It would appear that James and John, I know most of the Art that we artwork we see of the early disciples of James and John and Peter, they're always, you know, they got the halos on their head, these beautiful expressions on their faces, and everything looks so calm and serene. The problem with so much of the Middle Eastern uh, or the Middle Age artwork is that it's totally unbiblical in the sense that James and John were nicknamed by Jesus the uh, sons of thunder, so apparently they both had pretty terrific tempers that could get away from them and even did the same thing, and their tempers getting away from them when they were with Jesus. Josephus, a great Jewish historian, recorded that the Galileans, and both of these guys, John and James, would have been Galileans, were, quote, ardent and fierce. So Galileans basically had a reputation in that day of being short-fused. John, James, and Peter, those three shared very closely and very much in significant experiences with the Lord Jesus. They were present in the Garden of Gethsemane. They were there when Jairus' daughter was healed, etc. And so those three, they were at the transfiguration. And so they share in those tremendous experiences with Jesus. J John is believed to have been the youngest 
of Jesus' disciples and also was the one who we think lived to be the oldest. In fact, we think he died in his 90s, being the last living disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ and would have the longest lifetime of serving the Lord Jesus. And so this is sort of the idea of who he was. He owned a home in the city of Jerusalem. Now, as I mentioned before, John met Jesus there by the Sea of Galilee. Now, I want us to get the picture. Since Jesus nicknamed him and his brother James the Sons of Thunder, apparently John had a temper as well as his brother James. And Jesus comes up to the side of the Sea of Galilee, and he meets these two brothers, along with the other, some of the other disciples who were fishermen, but in particular, he meets these two brothers working in their father's fishing business. Now, these guys are two brothers who don't know Jesus, who would not have been religious men. Now, again, I know the artwork and the depictions of these guys is always that, you know, they're just sort of walking around with the halos over their head and everything looks so spiritual and sounds so godly and they are so wonderful. But I'm sorry, I've never met two men who didn't know Jesus, who didn't bother much with the Lord, who were out there just doing their thing. They walked around with halos on their head and spewing beatitudes out of their mouth. They had stuff, usually they have stuff coming out of their mouth, but it's not beatitudes that are coming out of their mouth. And so if you can imagine that these guys, that Jesus walks down there, and these guys don't know who Jesus is. And so the first time and the first few times they meet him, I'm sure they're not sitting there just quoting Scripture around Jesus and saying nice things. They're probably doing the kind of things that lost, unsaved guys do when they're on their jobs, and they probably talk that way. And what did Jesus do with them? He didn't condemn them. He didn't throw them into the Sea of Galilee. He didn't say, I'm going to call a lightning bolt out of here and strike you because you just cussed. Jesus keeps going back over and over to the Sea of Galilee, and he keeps visiting with these guys, and he keeps building a relationship and a friendship. Can you imagine probably the amount of profanity that he had to listen to as he came back and visited them over and over again? I would imagine Jesus probably had to put up with some dirty jokes that the disciples, before they were disciples, shared with each other because that's, again, what guys tend to do when they don't know the Lord and they are together. And then can you imagine what it would have been like on the side of the Sea of Galilee when those guys are coming in having fished all night? They are tired. They're worn out. They're trying to pick fish out of these great big old nets that aren't cooperating with them. I would imagine they heard some things come out of their mouth then that, you know, wasn't too appropriate to say in the presence of the Son of God. And what does Jesus do? He just continues to listen to them, and he continues to love them, and he continues to build a relationship and a friendship with them. And the day finally comes that they've been listening to him. They've been watching him. They realize he's different. They begin to dawn on them that this guy, because he loves us different than anybody we've ever seen loves us, he listens to us in ways no one else has ever listened to us. He seems to have some stuff going for him we've never seen before and it begins to dawn on these guys this man must be this maybe is the son of God and then the day comes that Jesus walks up to him and he says I want you to follow me and the Bible says that they dropped everything and they followed him but why did they follow him because he had built a relationship with them and because they knew that he loved them if they didn't realize anything else about Jesus and didn't have their theology together too much about him they knew that he loved them But follow me on this, folks. They 
met Jesus because Jesus went to where they were at. And Jesus went to Galilee by the Sea of Galilee. He did not go to the temple and find them. He didn't go to a synagogue and follow them. He didn't go to a prayer meeting and find them. He found them at their jobs by the Sea of Galilee. And folks, if we are going to lead people to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, we've got to have a Galilee that we go to. We've got to have places that we go to where lost people are who don't know Jesus and he's not on their mind and they have no sense to follow him and they're going to say stuff and do stuff that may make us feel uncomfortable and our skin crawls, so to speak, but we're not there for them to live up to our expectations and to get holy on us. We are there to love them to Jesus Christ. We are there to introduce them to Jesus Christ and all of us have got to find a Galilee somewhere in our lives to go to and meet people there. One of the reasons we have a Sunday afternoon basketball ministry is because out on this court that's just a few feet from our door, we meet young people in our community where they are in life. And I asked the Lord when we got started that ministry, God, would you give me some folks that I could go to and and share Christ with who don't know you? And when I go out on that court on Sunday afternoon, I hear language out on the court that tells me my prayers are being answered. But that's Galilee. And that's what Jesus did. He, he met those guys there. Now let's join the story after John begins to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to read, hear the body language here. So many times when we read Scripture, we just want to read through it and read over the top of it. I want you to look at the body language that's used here in this passage. John's Gospel, chapter 13. And we're going to look at verse 23 through verse 25. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Now, John is writing his gospel here, and he always uses the third person to identify himself, and he refers to himself in the third person as the disciple whom Jesus loved. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved, now notice the body language, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. He's reclining at the table. In those days, the way the tables were done, they were sort of like in an L-shape. And you would go and you wouldn't sit down at the table and eat in a chair like we do in our culture. They had couches all around them. And you literally would stretch out perpendicular to the table. And you would rest your hand on your head on your hand. And so when he talks about him reclining, that's the way they all would have been eating. And they would eat very long. One of the reasons they ate like that is because the meals lasted for hours. And so they're there, and they're reclining at the table. And notice it says he was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him, that would have been to John, to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. It's interesting that Peter doesn't speak to Jesus himself. He asked John to relay a message to Jesus. So that disciple, again, John referring to himself in the third person, leaning back against Jesus. Body language again, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And what I want you to see in this passage is that there are two references made here to John's physical proximity to Jesus. It says that he is at Jesus' side, and then it says that when the question comes to him from Peter, he leans back on 
Jesus. John is intentionally making sure at this meal that there is no space emotionally, psychologically, or even physically between him and Jesus. If you had walked in there that night and looked at the 12 sitting around the table, you would have seen Jesus in the center. And then of all of the disciples sitting in the room, there's going to be one disciple who is right next to Jesus, literally side by side with Jesus. And when a question comes to him, he leans back on Jesus, no doubt leaning into Jesus, and presents the question to Jesus. Now, the reason I want you to see this physical proximity, this closeness that John has with Jesus, is this sets up everything else we're going to see today. The reason that we will see where John is in the courtyard in a few minutes and where John is at the cross is because he's so close to Jesus physically, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically. A disciple sticks close to Jesus. I got a lint brush here. If I take this lint brush and I rub it up and down on something, what does it do? It's supposed to pick up the lint that's on it. I am so glad these, they created these. Do you remember back in the old days when they had the other kind of brushes? I don't know about you all, but in those days when they had those other brushes, I would do like this, and it put lint on me instead of taking it off. So when they came out with these deals, I was really excited. You rub this up and down, and it sticks to the shirt of the surface, and it starts pulling the stuff off. You see, John was sticking to Jesus, and he was pulling boldness off of Jesus. He was pulling courage off of Jesus. He was pulling the love of Jesus into himself. He was pulling who Jesus was into himself because he was side by side with Jesus. He was sticking close to Jesus. If you get one of these that's really good and sticky, it will adhere to whatever you are, and you got to work at it to pull it off. And that was the idea of John sticking close to Jesus. He's pulling off of Jesus energy, love, power, all that Jesus is. Because why? Because he was so close to Jesus. This will not work on this if it's out here. It only works when it's touching. And John understood he had to be close to Jesus in order to pull from Jesus who he was what he had. Now, folks, you and I are not going to pull his love, his power, his holiness, and all that Jesus is. We're not going to pull that into us and receive that if we don't stick with Jesus and we don't stick close to Jesus. And how do we do that? Well, one of the key ways that we do that every day is to take time in his word. When you and I get in the word of God, and we read his word, and we meditate on his word, we chew on his word, we take his word into us. It's like just taking ourselves and putting us close to the Lord and starting to pick up on us who we are and what we are. Listen, our lives are like this, and whatever we rub up against all day long is what's going to stick to us. And if you and I are not rubbing up against the word of God and into the word every day, we're going to be rubbing up and sticking our lives on a whole bunch of other mess. And the reason we get depressed is because we get 
mess gets stuck on us that depresses us. The reason we get upset and we get angry is because stuff sticks on us that makes us angry and frustrated, etc. But when we are rubbing on the Lord Jesus, so to speak, when we are up close to Him every day in His Word, then we are drawing off of Him and into ourselves who He is. And so the Word of God is the way that you and I get close to Him and we stick close to Him every day. I cannot stress it enough, the importance of reading the Word of God every day. Now notice how John keeps referring to himself in this passage. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved. Think about this. John's sitting there writing. How is it, how he's thinking, you know, I gotta, I'm writing my own book here. And I've got to identify who I am in the third person. But how am I going to do that? What is my identity? Well, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, John was not saying by that that Jesus loved me more than the other disciples. What John is saying when he says the disciple whom Jesus loved is at the core of John's being. He knew that who he was is a follower of Jesus that was loved by Jesus. A follower of Jesus that was loved by Jesus. How much do you and I know that we are really loved by Jesus? I'm not talking about intellectually. I'm talking about down here that I really know that I'm loved by Jesus. You see, I think with John, if you'd have gone to John in the middle of the night and woken him up out of a dead sleep and said, John, who are you? John would have said, I'm a follower of Jesus and he loves me. If you'd have gone to John on his best day and his best hour and said, John, could you tell me who you are? John would say, I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm loved by him. If you had gone to John on his worst day and his worst hour and you'd have said, John, who are you? John would have said, I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm loved by him. I got a sponge here. This sponge has got all kinds of crevices in holes, in places where liquid can permeate into it. If you let the sponge be in a liquid long enough, it will permeate, the fluid will permeate all the way into the interior and the core of this sponge. You see, where John was at this time, when you get to the 13th chapter, and then as we'll see later today, as we progress in the story, the love of God, the love that Jesus had for John wasn't just a surface thing. He wasn't content just to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, that's nice, and let me leave and go home. He allowed the love of God to permeate into him. And you see, folks, God made us in our souls like sponges, And why did he make us like a sponge? He made us like a sponge so that we could absorb into the core of who we are, his love. Now, we're the ones who, you know, get trying to take the surface of our lives and make it like a rock so nothing can penetrate into us. But stuff penetrates into us whether we want it to or not. we got these holes in it, and the stuff's coming in whether we like it or not. But we've got to choose like John to say, the love of Jesus is going to permeate into me. And because I'm going to allow his love to permeate into me, it will change us. 
It'll change the texture of who we are. Do you and I believe that Jesus loves us enough that he really wants to do something in our lives? That he really wants to take you and use you? Do you believe that Jesus loves you enough that he can reach into the core of who you are and bring internal healing into your life? Do you believe that Jesus loves you enough that he is willing to walk with you in the darkest hour of your life and to get you through that? Do you believe that Jesus loves you enough that when this life ends, he will take you to be with him into eternity? Not as some nice thought, but as your best friend who's going to walk with you through that experience and into the next life. Do we really believe that Jesus loves us? Do we believe as a church that Jesus loves us so much that we are, if we call on him in prayer and ask for him to pour his spirit out in us and among us that he will do that that he loves us enough that he will do that that's where John was and that's why he identified himself I'm a disciple whom Jesus loves how much do we really believe and live like Jesus loves us now notice next in this story that a disciple a sticks close to Jesus secondly a disciple is bold chapter 18 of John's gospel chapter 18 Verses 15 through 17, Simon Peter, getting notice some body language here. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. John referring to himself there, third person. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple, John again referring to himself, was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus. Notice what's happening here. He enters with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Verse 16. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Verse 17. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also... Now notice a key word here. You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Verse 25, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Now let's look at the story as it unfolds here. Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's with his disciples when this arrest takes place. Jesus is taken by the Roman soldiers, and he leaves the Garden of Gethsemane. And they begin to go in the direction of the high priest's courtyard. Only two disciples walk out of that garden following Jesus. Peter and John, only two. They get to the courtyard of the great high priest... John, somehow or another, knows the great high priest. There is a theory that John's dad, Zebedee, may have sold fish to the great high priest, and that's how they knew each other. That's a theory. But they get to this courtyard. Peter stays outside the gate, and John goes into the courtyard. Jesus has been arrested He's not going into the high priest's courtyard in the middle of the night for coffee and donuts. He's going in there to have a trial to be condemned for death. Everybody knows what kind of trouble Jesus is in. 
And what does John do? He follows Jesus into the courtyard. That took guts. When your leader is on trial for his life and you're willing to go into the same courtyard and identify with him and put your life on the line, that's the reason the other disciples did not follow. That's the reason Peter stays outside the courtyard and when John arranges for him to come into the courtyard, he denies that he knows who Jesus is because Peter knows what's going to happen. But John goes into the courtyard, is identified as Jesus' follower, he kept saying, you're, when they went to Peter, they said, you're a disciple also. Well, why they say also? Because they knew John was a follower. You see, you see in Peter here, I mean, in John here, boldness. I'm going to follow Jesus. And I'm going to follow Jesus into a courtyard. I'm going to stand with him as he's arrested I'm going to stand with him as he's on trial. I'm going to identify with him even though I'm running the risk of being arrested myself. Even though I could be condemned to die just like he is being condemned to die. A disciple is bold. Why was John so bold? Why was John willing to put his life on the line? Why did he go all the way into the courtyard with Jesus? Goes back to how John identified himself. I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. You see, when you and I know in the very essence of our being that we are loved by him and we are secure in his love, that breeds boldness in us. I'm willing to stand for him anywhere, anytime, because I know how much he loves me. Because I have stuck beside him and stuck with him. And I have been tenacious to make sure that no space gets between me and Jesus. Then when the courtyard time comes, I'm going with him. And I'm going to stand with him. And I'm going to identify with him. Where's your courtyard? Where's your courtyard? Where's the place that you have to go and you have to take a stand for him and you need to identify with him? And there's probably going to be repercussions for doing that. Where's your courtyard? For some of you, tomorrow morning in your classroom at school will be your courtyard. Where if you stand for Jesus and you identify as a Christian, you're liable to be rejected ridicule, Jesus freak, poke fun at, whatever. For some of you, your job is your courtyard. For some of us, family is our courtyard. When you stand for Jesus and you love him and you walk with him and you're identified with him, you're going to catch it from your family or catch it on your job. Where is your courtyard? For the church today, our courtyard has become our culture. The culture has left Christian values. We see evidence of it every day. And so, as the church, we have to be willing now to stand in a culture 
that rejects our values very often and rejects the authority of the Word of God and doesn't want to hear anything about the Lord Jesus as opposed to a culture that not too many years ago welcomed all of that. But the issue is not whether we're welcome or rejected. The issue is, are we going to have the boldness? And the boldness comes from what? Knowing that Jesus loves us. Knowing that we are secure in his love and willing to go to that courtyard. Now, he is arraigned in the courtyard that night, condemned to die. And the story proceeds to John's gospel, chapter 19. A disciple is loyal. John's gospel, chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. Jesus here is at the cross. And notice how the story unfolds there at the cross. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, Standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. John leaves the courtyard. And he follows Jesus down what's called the Via Della Rosa through Jerusalem. Watches Jesus carrying the cross. Watches him fall under the weight of the cross. He follows him up the hill called Calvary. And then John, the only disciple out of the twelve, the only one, stands there at the cross beside Mary, the mother of Jesus. And it says, Jesus looked down from the cross and he saw his, mer- saw his mother Mary and he saw John standing beside her. That's loyalty. They could easily have said, There's one of his disciples standing by his mother. He's going to create trouble, just like the one we're crucifying created trouble. Let's put another cross up on this hill and crucify him. Could have said that. Nothing to stop it. That was loyalty. I'm going to be loyal to you, Jesus, to the place of the cross. I'm going to be loyal to you, Jesus, even if it were to cost my life up here on this hill. The other disciples are all cowering in the upper room, scared to death. John alone is on the hill that day with the mother of Jesus. Now, notice what happens. Jesus looks down from the cross. He sees John. He sees his mother. And how does he reward the loyalty of John? He says, John, behold your mother. Woman, behold your son. He essentially is looking at John and he is saying, John, I'm giving you the responsibility of taking care of my mother. I'm going to reward your loyalty by passing my responsibility of taking care of her on to you. 
I'm going to reward your loyalty by, probably, by giving to you, John, the person who means the most to me in life. And I have known the longest, my mom. I'm giving her welfare over to you. That's how I'm rewarding your loyalty. And it says that John walked off the hill that day, no doubt with his arm around Mary's shoulder, taking those painful, hard steps with her as she turned her back on the dead body of her son and wept walking off of that hill, took her into his home that day and took care of her. Can you imagine the night that John had trying to comfort her and help her out? Jesus rewards loyalty by giving us greater responsibility to serve him. Jesus rewards loyalty by giving to us ever greater ways of serving him. And sometimes those ways are pretty difficult. This was not an easy assignment that he gave to John. Your loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ will be rewarded by responsibility given to you. Now, sometimes we want to think our loyalty is going to be rewarded to us by life getting easier and better and smoother. That happens when we check into heaven someday, all right? doesn't happen this side of heaven, so don't be looking for it. Loyalty to Jesus, this side of heaven, is rewarded by greater responsibility from him. But we'll also see next week a greater revelation of who he is. So the question comes to us. Jesus is here. Are we willing to stick with him? If we are, he will make us bold. He will work loyalty into us. And he will give us awesome opportunities to serve him. The key to that, the key to getting close and sticking with him, is staying with him in his word. Staying with him in his word. I can't stress that enough. Sticking to him by staying and sticking in his word. Now, I want to help you with that. And I know some of you have got a daily walk with the Lord and you're in his word every day. And some of you that are here and some of you that are listening through social media, you may struggle with that. So we want to help you with that. Next Sunday, Easter Sunday, at both of our services, 830 and 11, we will give you a devotional book called The Apostles' Code, which is a 40-day devotional book for you to take. It's called the Apostles' Code because it will take you through a journey of the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life for, for the next 40 days. From Easter to what's called Pentecost, which is the celebration of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We're going to give you that devotional book. We're also going to, also going to provide you a guide through the book of Ephesians. A reading guide through the book of Ephesians for 40 days. Now, why is it the book of Ephesians? Because there's a tremendous amount of truth talk about, written in the book of Ephesians about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to begin a series of sermons in a few, works, a few weeks from the book of Ephesians on the ministry of the Holy Spirit as it's seen in the book of Ephesians. So we're going to be reading through Ephesians together, and we're going to be doing that devotional book. And the whole purpose of that is for us to get into the Word for a 40-day period of time and saturate ourselves in the Word of God so we can get really close to Jesus, so we can be by His side, so we are leaning in to Him. And he is permeating who we are. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you this morning for the joy of being in your presence.
in worshiping you this day. We want to thank you that we can stick as close to you as we can possibly be, Lord. Father, we praise you, we bless you, and we honor you. And Lord, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for the relationship that we can have with you of boldness and loyalty and just sticking with you, Jesus. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're listening here in this room or, again, through any of our social media platforms and you want to give your life to Jesus and you've heard him deep inside of you saying, follow me, follow me, follow me, and you're willing to follow him, that I want to encourage you to pray a simple prayer to him right now. Lord Jesus, today I will follow you. I will follow you, Jesus. And if you made that decision, if you would let us know, let me know after the service if you're here. Let us know through email, through Facebook. We would love to encourage you and help you as you begin a walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we praise you. Thank you for the privilege and the call to follow you, to be your disciple. In your name we pray. Amen.